0: Hello, I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. The following podcast, the IFG's Year in Review, was recorded on the 17th of December. The year was winding down and we were all getting ready for the five-day Christmas relaxation. But 2020 wasn't done with us. Over the course of the weekend, the existence of a new strain of coronavirus was confirmed, Christmas was swiftly cancelled, Tier 4 restrictions were announced and the Port of Dover was shut down. So, by the time you finish listening, who knows what will have happened but we've got the first 351 days of the year covered and we'll be back to catch up on the rest very soon. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, and this is our special year in review podcast. Back in January, Boris Johnson tweeted that it was going to be a fantastic year. It hasn't quite worked out like that. In fact, most of us probably can't wait for 2020 to be over. With the tragedy of COVID, the never-ending sagas of Brexit, and the comings and goings of Whitehall, yes, remember him, this has also been an astonishing year for people who follow the workings of government, which is what the IFG does 365 days a year. The once-in-a-century pandemic trying to get Brexit done, reforming the entire civil service, the Prime Minister raced from Downing Street to intensive care, Cabinet Secretary and the Prime Minister's Chief Strategist booted out of Downing Street, billions spent on propping up jobs and businesses, schools shut down, government departments shut down, and across the Atlantic, a bitter US presidential election. And that barely scratches the surface. So to look back on it all, I've asked three of the IFG's finest to join me. In fact, I persuaded them to join me after the raucous and many hours long IFG Christmas party, held virtually, of course, our IFG senior fellow, Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hello, Bronwyn. Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service. Hi, Alex.
1: Hi, Bronwyn. We'll try and hold it together.
0: <laughs> and Maddie t jack who runs our Brexit team, which is still going um, over, the, over the Christmas period. Hi, Maddie.
2: Hi, Bronwyn. Yeah, no, we are still uh, watching and waiting.
0: <laughs> Jill, let's start with you. And let's start with COVID and government. Let's begin inevitably then with the virus and this year. You're going to give us a quick 45-second take on the year.
3: I think this was the thing that the Prime Minister didn't expect when he was looking, uh, looking at the start of the year. 31st of January, he'd got Brexit done, at least in his own limited definition. Maddie will say more about why it wasn't really done then. Uh, and the Prime Minister, I think, as you said at the start, Bronwyn was looking forward to a very optimistic year. He'd come in with his ginormous electoral mandate after his election victory back in December and had a year when he was going to splash some cash he was going to level up set the new direction finally settle the uk's future relationship with the eu and in the background there was this you know story about some disease in china but it was never going to get anywhere near the uk and if it did we had perfectly good plans in place that would mean we would be minimally touched after all the uk had weathered SARS without any discernible impact and the sort of swine flu back in 2009 had actually not made much difference in the wider scheme of things. You can barely remember it now. So the Prime Minister was looking forward, set fair, sorting out his personal life, summer wedding, etc. But it didn't turn out like that. And I think what we've seen throughout is a Prime Minister who's really been struggling to step up to the enormity of the task he's been given. Uh, almost everybody who's been anywhere near government uh, says that they had never had to deal with anything like this because the people who are still alive today, none of them were in government during the Second World War, which is the sort of last uh, event of anything approaching a similar scale to coping with the global pandemic. It might be on the risk register, but it didn't mean anyone was very, very well prepared. And I think the other thing that's made it very difficult for the Prime Minister is both within himself and and within his party, he has been struggling throughout between his natural instinct to not impose restrictions, to try and weather it through, to support the economy rather than sort of do the massive clampdown for public health. And that's meant that he's being forced reluctantly to take measures that go against all his better instincts and has laid himself open to the charge that he's always just that bit behind the curve. Combined with that, his natural boosterism, what he's after all good at, why he's so popular, is his optimism, which has led him into a repeat cycle of over-promising and under-delivery. And roll on, you know, nine months from his first announcements in mid-March, his announcements, you know, at his press conference yesterday about Christmas, you can still see the Prime Minister struggling from the man that wants to have a great Christmas and ensure everybody else can have maximum fun with the guy that really knows we might wake up with a mother of all public health uh, hangovers in the new year. And I think it's been a really, really difficult time for the Prime Minister. The one thing that's possibly been easier for him than other Conservative Prime Ministers is he is a natural public spender and being a natural public spender, I don't think he's found it so difficult to write those eye-watering checks, uh, if you like, sort of co-sign them with Richie Sunak as, uh, as another Prime Minister might have found. I don't think any other Conservative Prime Minister would have been as happy about the scale of state intervention as Boris Johnson has been.
0: But it's been... <laughs> Interesting point. Yeah. It's not possibly quite as painful for him as it might have been for other Prime Ministers. But let me ask you this. Some Prime Ministers are defined, some leaders are defined by the, by events, dear boy, um, not by the plans that they had on, on winning the election. I'm, I'm thinking of George W. Bush and so on. Um, we're a year into it. Um, is he going to be defined by his response to correct?
3: I think it really depends if... By the time of the next election, does 2020 seem like just a bad dream? It almost sounds like Dallas, that we wake up and then we'll all remember back, wasn't there, that year when we got on our bikes, seemed to be at home a lot, spent all our life on Zoom because life has reverted so much to normal that we can barely remember it. And the biggest hope for the Prime Minister is that they manage the vaccine rollout really efficiently. And that means that by April, May, not that the entire population will be vaccinated because it won't be, but they've managed to vaccinate enough of the people who are really vulnerable that the worries about the NHS tipping over, some of the worries that have forced them to take the biggest restrictions can be lifted. And I think the next election 2023, it doesn't have to be, they're repealing the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, it doesn't have to be until May 2024, I think. If it's then, we might have forgotten this year or just you know parked it as an interesting experience. And if the economy's recovered, and that will go to this issue of scarring and recovery, quite a lot of people think the economy might bounce back into something that looks pretty much like the same shape uh, from covid but it might be suffering from some of the sort of longer term withdrawal impacts of Brexit.
0: We'll come on to that as well. Alex, you've seen um, governments very close up, people rushing up and down the corridors of the Cabinet Office. Um, This extraordinary year and coronavirus, the big successes, the failures?
1: Yes. And you can you can cut the government quite a lot of slack in the very, very early days of the pandemic, but perhaps less so more recently is my kind of uh, headline reaction on that. But I think in terms of the failures and perhaps some of the failures that we might not have anticipated, I'd pick out two. Uh, The first is itself. A failure of the government to anticipate a succession of things. I think this, the, the government's really struggled to look more than a few weeks, a, f- a couple of months ahead. And we've seen this in a succession of different uh, aspects of the pandemic from uh, anticipating the second lockdown, or so failing to anticipate the second lockdown at the same time as promoting Eat Out to help out, all the way through to, um, Jill mentioned the recent um, tangle they've got into over Christmas. Quite a lot of these things. Uh, were uh, able to be anticipated and I'm surprised the government hasn't been able to carve out and the civil service hasn't been able to carve out the space to uh, to anticipate those things. The other uh, failure that I would pull out, and, and I am surprised about this, is communications any government's communications will be put under strain by a crisis like this. But I think time after time, we've seen confused messages, uh, conflicts between sort of optimism and pessimism, reversals within a few days. And as I sort of said earlier, I think the that is that is understandable in the very, very early phases of any crisis, while you're still trying to establish information and get um, get everybody in good order. I've been surprised that the, the, the comms machine hasn't uh, had more of a, a, a grip throughout the later phases. Um, you asked about successes. I think there are lots but a lot of them have been obscured by the poor communications. We've all talked a lot about the success of the economic uh, and financial support early in the the crisis. I think that was a success. I think also there have been extraordinary efforts in the health service uh, around mobilisation, uh, not just the building of the Nightingale hospitals, but some of the you know, the investment, the portfolio investment in uh, vaccines, re-gearing the whole of the NHS to deal with sort of era-defining um, pandemic. So uh, those sort of um, under-the-bonnet things, I think, have been a success, but they've been obscured by um, by the, the top-line messaging.
0: And Maddie, if you look back a year, we would not have believed, I think, uh, the intrusions and restrictions on people's behavior, intrusions into our life, explaining, you know exactly where we are in some circumstances and so on, unprecedented new laws. And keeping an eye on all this is the job of Parliament, among others. How do you think
2: So I think I mean it's quite interesting to look back at how sort of Parliament has performed during the pandemic. I mean, I'd first just broadly say that actually, like you know, there there was a sort of heroic amount of work done in ensuring that Parliament could go ahead in a virtual format. You know, we've ended up largely in a sort of hybrid format where some some um, MPs can dial in from home and the peers largely also are sort of operating from home while some are in the chamber. But I do, you know, I sort of feel like credit should go where credit's due that actually, you know, a lot of people worked very very hard to make sure that our parliament could continue to sit and could continue to scrutinise what the government was doing. Having said that, I do think that, um, particularly at the start of the pandemic, I think that parliament... Did hand over a lot of control to the government. I mean, if you look, think back to March when the government rushed through the Coronavirus Act and gave sort of ministers sweeping powers to make a lot of these changes to our lives without having to return to Parliament. I think that there was clearly a sort of a concern about what, how Parliament would operate, and so whether or not um, they would be able to sort of renew powers, for example, that ministers might need. But I do think that there was a sort of a slight dereliction there in terms of, in terms of sort of agreeing to, to sort of give government such sweeping powers. And then I think it's been interesting to see how sort of over the summer and particularly into the winter, we've seen particularly on the conservative backbenches, sort of an, a growing sort of concern about quite how much um, power the government does have to do things, and we've seen, I think, the government and parliament coming into sort of more conflict around that. And as I say, I think particularly on on the Conservative backbenchers, where um, obviously we we know that there's a, a sizable group of MPs who aren't happy with the level of restrictions that still are ongoing, um, sort of across across the UK, but particularly across England. Um, we know that there is a sort of group of them who are concerned about what the government is doing, and they have exercised pressure on the government to come back to parliament to ask for. for for their powers and to sort of approve regulations um put, putting new restrictions on our on sort of daily life so i think we've sort of seen parliament maybe assert itself during the process but but i would say that i think at the beginning anyway um there was i think they they sort of to an extent um, allowed the government to to sort of concentrate power. I mean it's obviously difficult because when you're looking at a government with an 80 seat majority um sort of how much can can um, can uh, MPs do? Um but I but I do think it's been quite interesting to watch that that sort of tension play out although as I say it's sort of more within the party rather than necessarily in parliament itself. I mean I think it's also been interesting to watch Sort of, I know we're going to come on to Brexit, but in terms of that relationship between Parliament and government is, you know, the uh, sort of Conservative Party, many MPs in the Conservative Party have been quite happy to allow um, the government to have pretty free reign in trade negotiations. You know, they haven't supported amendments that would give Parliament more of a role there. They're still allowing government to have that sort of control. But in on the sort of coronavirus issues, we've seen that, that sort of tension increase.
0: How do you think Labour's done after taking an amazingly long time, to me anyway, um, to pick its new leader?
2: It's been really interesting, I think, to watch Labour because I do think Keir Starmer and the Labour Party have had a very difficult, they've had to tread quite a difficult line because they do want to, you know, in terms of responding to the pandemic, they, they you, you can't be criticising and attacking the government. At every turn, because some of what had to happen, what happened this year was really about you know broader public health, and some of the measures the government introduced were sort of designed to protect people's lives and protect people's livelihoods. So I think that you know when the government was was sort of taking steps to do that, I think Labour largely has tried to be supportive. You know, at times they've tried to say, well, maybe we need a little bit more money, and we obviously very noticeably, noticeably Keir Starmer came out in October and called for a national lockdown before the Prime Minister announced one. So we've sort of seen moments where i think labor has has tried to be a bit more uh, assertive but but i think that it's been difficult and I, it's quite interesting that now, particularly with the recent regulations where um, Labour chose to abstain, there is now a, a growing narrative about Keir Starmer you know, sitting on the fence rather than um, saying this is what Labour stands for, this is what Labour believes in. And I think that's going to be something that Labour's really going to have to think about going into next year. And I mean, you know, the, the, what they're going to do on Brexit, I think, will also come into that. It's
1: interesting. There have been a couple of moments when Keir Starmer and Labour could have asserted themselves and could have chosen to explain to, uh, a bit of leverage but chose not to uh, and I can you know I can see. So, so the the, the abstention that um, Maddie mentioned, there, there were enough conservative rebels for um, the government to have to concede on, you know, a greater support package when the uh, uh, lockdown came in. Uh, and Starmer chose not to exercise that leverage, I assume, because he doesn't want to own the issue and he doesn't want to. He want, he wants to keep as much political space as possible. Um, so I sort of understand that. But as Maddie said, it's becoming less and less uh, tenable. And and he he's going to have a number of these decisions, I think, over the rest of this parliament as the Conservative Party asserts itself over the Prime Minister, where he has to choose whether he wants to uh, step out of the debate or try and uh, shape it to to Labour's advantage.
0: Jill, can I ask you about one thing, looking ahead to next year, and we know that the elections in in May um, and the the question of how Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have fared and all this and relations with them is is going to be a big deal, relations with with local mayors. Um, Where do you think this year has left us?
3: Well, I think I think it, one of the really interesting things this year is this is the year I think when you know devolution has um, become known to uh, to people living in England. It's probably uh, much more obvious to people living in Scotland and Wales. But I think the fact of devolution has become hugely more prominent this year, and we have seen quite interesting, not really substantive differentiations. That's sort of emerging a bit now. But it's quite interesting. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's undoubtedly reaped a huge benefit from being a more effective communicator on coronavirus than the Prime Minister, though the results in Scotland are not significantly better than in the UK. It's put immense pressure on the executive in Northern Ireland. We saw a couple of weeks ago a time when the the Northern Ireland executive appeared unable to agree a way forward. And remember, that forced coalition where the health minister is from an Ulster Unionist so the only Ulster Unionist in the government very difficult position to be in it's quite interesting when Jess Stargent and I were doing our report on Northern Ireland officials were telling us that they were always very worried if they uh, were a department that ended up uh, being picked by one of the small parties because it meant you never got any money because the Sinn Féin and DUP ganged up to corner of the resources. So it's quite interesting that the health minister is a UUP. I think one of the things that's really interesting for me, and I'm slightly wondering, picking up on Alex and Maddy's point about Keir Starmer, why Boris Johnson hasn't, hasn't been tempted to capitalise a bit more on the fact that the Welsh government actually did what Keir Starmer was recommending of going for a circuit breaker lockdown. And Wales now seems to be worrying that because of the way it unlocked out of that circuit breaker, which is always the question mark over that policy, has actually led to really quite a big surge in coronavirus. I don't know whether- yeah, And, the and, and it's, it's, just, it's
0: just announced another lockdown for the 28th. Yeah, it's
3: just, just announced it's going to go back after the 28th, after the national agreement uh, on Christmas. Uh, and it's also revised downwards the number of households, I think, that can meet over Christmas. But I think it's quite interesting whether any of these governments feel an impact from the way in which they've handled. I don't know whether Mark Drakeford, who's now become something of a national figure, was slightly surprised to find someone doing an impression of him on dead ringers at the weekend. I don't think that would have happened a year ago. Um, So he's now a bit more lodged in the national conscience. But whether there is any sort of penalty to be paid or indeed dividend for devolved governments in terms of their handling, at those elections in uh, in May. I mean, obviously the thing everybody's looking at is the impact it has on the SNP's mandate where they managed to get over 50%, uh, regain a majority in uh, in Holyrood to press again for the independence referendum. The other people who clearly made their mark, I think you could say, are the two Andys, well, two Andys and a Steve, as in the Metro mayors, Andy Burnham, you know, lodging himself there as the defender of northern economic interests, if you like. Andy Street, I think, increasingly powerful voice on behalf of the West Midlands. And that may have secured the position of those metro mayors, which was rather sort of unwelcome in position from George Osborne when they were invented as part of his Devo deals. Uh, interesting to see whether they've, you know, got more popular support than they had when mayors were pretty roundly rejected in the referendums in, uh, early in the Cameron government.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and to see whether people um, you know, in, in areas that don't have mayors decide they might want one. Something we will come on to next year. All right, well, thank you for that. Let's turn to our second subject, which is the civil service and people in it and special advisors, and one of them in particular. So, Alex Thomas, um, your former civil servant, you now are Leading civil service watcher, give
1: us your quick blast on what. Yeah, my my take on the on the civil service in 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 a minute. Well, I'll I'll, I'll do my best. And and you mentioned it already, it's hard to get away from Dominic Cummings. And uh, so it was right at the start of the year. I just checked; it was January the second when he published his uh, infamous blog calling for super talented weirdos to uh, come and join the government. He uh, promised them excitement and influence, but he also told them that he would been you within weeks if you don't fit at the same time as uh, seeking cognitive diversity. So uh, I think that that sort of set the tone for the year, really. Uh, Lots of big talk, angry briefing, threats and tantrums, but all of that obscuring actually what was a pretty sensible problem diagnosis of what was wrong with the civil service and, and where government should be doing things better. Then it wasn't until June until we sort of first heard the briefings about a hard rain falling on the civil service that has uh, since become a a synonym for the for the Cummings plans. And over the year, by my count, I think it's 11 permanent secretaries who had got a soaking from that rain and had left the government. Um, Some went very quietly and moved on to new jobs. Some extremely publicly dismissed uh, with um, briefings against them uh, and others through pretty spectacular resignations, Philip Rutnam and uh, Jonathan Jones. Um, But they were all replaced with conventional choices who were mostly career civil servants and while all of this sort of soap opera was going on in the real world uh, as we've been talking about coronavirus and brexit uh showed some of the strengths of the civil service a rapid shift to home working and ability to mobilize Uh, economic, uh, human and other uh, resources as we were talking about earlier but also its weaknesses with uh, fragmented accountability, uh, weak central coordination and poor use of data amongst many other things. So where do we sit at the end of the year? I would say uh, superficially a lot has changed but fundamentally not all that much was actually uh, got done in terms of the civil service uh, and changing it in 2020. Uh, So the 2021 question is whether Michael Gove sticks around, whether he can work with Simon Case, the new cabinet. Secretary and whether they can uh, make some changes that actually happen and last.
0: Thank you for that. Um, So, the way you you describe it, the hard rain did start to fall on on some civil servants before it fell on Cummings himself. Um, But does that amount to more than just changing one lot of people the government happened not to want to work with and putting in others it rather preferred? uh, Should we actually expect these wider reforms, or is it just a reshuffle of the top team in the way the government's? quite
1: like to do. Yeah. So I think it's two quite different things. I mean, does does it change that much, the the sackings and the the, the uh, merry-go-round no, it doesn't. Uh, as I said, uh, the same sort of people are heading government departments. The same sort of people are uh, are leading the civil service. The thing that changed, and we'll we'll see how this plays out over the coming months, is obviously it sets an atmosphere. If there's a, if there's an atmosphere that you uh, you will be briefed against, you will be dismissed if if you don't perform or if you happen to fall out of favour more um uh, more more likely, uh, then that does change the environment. But I think. Those sort of sound and fury personnel changes are actually quite a different thing from the daily grind of uh, reforming the civil service. Promen, you hosted an event with with uh, John Kingman yesterday uh, this week, and he made the point that. Um, uh, he made the point that, that civil service reform is a slog and the sorts of things we're actually talking about if you want to change the civil service are accountability uh, structures uh, and and making sure people uh, hang around, uh, civil service pay, uh, making sure you get the right skills in the civil service. I think all of that will carry on happening though I think some of it depends on uh, on whether Michael Gove stays in his, his current job um, but I'm uh, I, I suspect with less uh, sound and fury and a bit more uh, under the radar. One final point on this is this is the sort of, you know, the triumph of Francis Maud, actually, some of these permanent secretary turnarounds. Uh, quite a lot of those 11 weren't sacked or or didn't resign. They came to the end of their five year terms. In a different world, we might have expected those terms to be renewed. But actually, um, Francis Maud can uh, sort of sit back and, uh, and and see the consequences of actions he took in 2011, 12, uh, 13, and that's arguably had far more of an effect on this than Dominic Cummings ever did.
0: And we put a new cabinet secretary, and you, you talk about them being the same kind of people. On the other hand, Simon Case is—I mean, he's very young. Job—he uh, spent a bit of time working the royal family, which arguably, I'm suggest, just, has had a, as bad a time. Um, in public relations, in the past year, with Princes Andrew and Harry, um, uh, and so on, um, as, as parts of the government, is—is is, um, is he going to be the right person?
1: I think he's—he's he's the right person. Because he has the confidence of the prime minister. Um, so the, the, the best thing about the Simon Case appointment is there was no doubt that he was the person who Boris Johnson uh, and at the time, uh, presumably Dominic Cummings, uh, wanted to be cabinet secretary. You can't do the job if you don't have that that first magic ticket. And the risk, if somebody else who didn't have the prime minister's full confidence had been, been appointed, is that they would be marginalised and, um, uh, and and wouldn't be in the room when key decisions were made. So I think Simon Case starts from a you know has has, has a good um uh, a, a good grounding there. The the big thing for him, as we've talked about um before, uh, is. The leadership of the civil service, the leadership of the permanent secretaries. Another really interesting little nugget is um, we've learned that um, he's carved out the line management of the permanent secretaries to Tom Scholar, who's the Treasury permanent secretary, and Alex Chisholm, who's the Chief Operating Officer, of the civil service. So he's clearly trying to sort of broaden his top team and uh, and establish himself in uh, you know as as the uh, leader of that uh, trio. Whether he can impose his will on that, whether he can show that he can stand up to the Prime Minister, and whether he can uh, broadcast his leadership of the civil service will be a really big test for him in 2021.
3: Can I just come here, begin here, because I think one of the really interesting developments this year in the civil service has almost been the return of the Treasury. Earlier in the year, we saw Sajid Javid resign over number 10's attempt to merge his his advisor team with the number 10 advisor team. Uh, I think when we were on a pro- podcast earlier in the year with Salma Shah, she, Is saying that basically, in a sense, effectively, it's ended up with Rishi Sunak just having a bigger advisor team who clearly have been pulled towards the gravitational weight of the Treasury. Very interesting that Tom Scholar, who is the one survivor of that list of permanent secretaries who were on the sort of, you know, the notorious S asterisk asterisk T list that the government was briefing out of number 10 earlier in the year, has not only survived, but he has now got this position as being part of the triumvirate at the top of the civil service alongside Simon Case and Alex Chisholm, managing the permanent secretaries.
0: Interesting. Yeah, but, but Jill, just, just on this point, I mean, the government appears to be sticking very firmly to the rule that permanent secretaries have only five years and then must uh, a step down. Maybe there's a way of getting, getting, um, getting people to move on, but Tom yeah. Scholars comes up fairly soon.
3: Thomas Scholar comes up next year. So that's a very interesting question of whether he survives that. I think uh, that will be a very interesting test. I know the Treasury Treasury officials would, uh, would very much want him to. He's certainly young enough to. Nick McPherson, after all, went on and on and on as permanent secretary at the Treasury. So it'll be a very interesting question about whether he just sort of steps quietly aside to chairmanship of some bank or wherever sort of thing Treasury permanent secretaries go on. To do the third thing that I think marks a bit of a comeback from the Treasury and a bit of a reorientation of back from what you might call the sort of reign of the Securocrats under Mark Sedwell is the uh, appointment of Dan Rosenfield, a former Treasury official who went off into the city, uh, to come back to be chief of staff after this big falling out with Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. That's very much a sort of conventional civil service appointment to this sort of. Slightly odd hybrid administrative come political role as chief of staff, but also a sort of you know reassertion I think of a bit of the Treasury worldview at the centre of government. I don't know if that Alex agrees with that.
1: Yeah, completely. I think if if the uh, departure of Dominic Cummings was significant, the arrival of Dan Rosenfield is even more significant. It shows that um, whether he manages to do it or not, the Prime Minister, I think, is serious about the reset that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Um, uh, so you you don't appoint someone like that unless you uh, realise that you've uh, you've you've got it wrong over the past year and you want to calm everything down and get a bit of good order back into Downing Street
0: yeah and Jill, one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean you've you've seen um quite all close up, we're often told that civil service are at their best in a crisis. have we Have we seen that this year?
3: Well, the trouble is the civil service has been in a sort of not quite perpetual crisis, but it's had two massive confounding incidents, you know to disrupt business as usual over the last four years for just sort of, you know, coming to terms with Brexit, a government which clearly wasn't working under Theresa May, a new government was clearly prepared to break all the rules, to get Brexit done, and then it had to deal with coronavirus. I don't. I think, you know, when we get to the lessons learnt, we will find some bits worked well, but other bits, uh, I think their weaknesses, I think this came out in uh, your event with John Kingman yesterday, some of the other weaknesses have been really exposed, and in particular the never-ending problem the civil service has in translating policy announcements. And this is a government, it's very much a government by headline announcements into real action on the ground. We've seen some big administrative failures, particularly around what I think is a sort of undervalued thing of logistics, of actually translating an idea into something that happens on the ground in a very immaculate way we've seen that with the continuing saga of tests and trace the early problems on ppe procurement and what we'll all have to be hoping is that we don't see that that the nhs really can cope with this massive vaccine rollout um hmm. program which is you know, and just, really, just to be clear
0: you, you would you would park some of that failure at the door of the civil service
3: I think some is in the sort of civil service come administrative machine with civil servants, whether it's uh, some of the advisors, but also some of the sort of arm's length bodies. Quite where those chains go between the policy decision and delivery on the ground and who is doing what when, there seem to have been some big sort of gaps that people haven't managed to fill adequately. And that is that is the long standing view of the British civil service, that it's not, you know, its weakness is not in producing nicely crafted policy announcements. It's been converting them into efficient action on the ground.
0: Mm. Maddy, we're going to go, uh, come on in a second to talk about Brexit in all its glory. But just while we're discussing the civil service, I wondered from your perspective, whether you felt that civil servants had been pulled off Brexit or distracted from it and not able to spend time on it because of this just extraordinary crisis that has broken over the country and the world.
2: Well, I think sort of my answer to that is quite simple. I mean, that that is what happened, um, particularly when we're thinking back to March, April time when, and I know we'll discuss it, you know, there was a lot of speculation about whether the government was just going to extend the transition period. So in which case, the civil service could focus all of its energies on the pandemic response and wouldn't have to be necessarily as concerned um, by what leaving the the Single Market and Customs Union would mean for the country. And so I think we did see um, civil servants move off Brexit onto COVID and we sort of FOI'd a few departments and got some figures um to, to sort of show that. Um, I think that then what sort of happened once it became clear that no, we weren't going to extend the transition period, we are um, heading for um sort of we're leaving at the end of the year, then I think we did see a sort of reorientation back towards Brexit. But I think then what sort of has been quite interesting, particularly over the last couple of months, and we recently sort of hosted a conversation at the IFG about it, is is then the civil service have not couldn't sort of just Deal with the two things separately. It wasn't about either dealing with Brexit, either dealing with COVID. As we headed to the end, are heading towards the end of the year. It's really about how those issues are going to interact, and how do you manage both at the same time? How do you manage a resurgence of the virus in January alongside a vaccine rollout, alongside managing disruption at ports? So that I think has sort of been a bit of that, sort of to my mind from the outside anyway, been the story of the civil service on sort of Brexit and COVID this year. I mean, the only thing I was also would just like to add to, to what Jill was talking talking about whether civil service has either struggled or not. I think the other sort of big thing to talk about and again Jill has mentioned this a bit earlier in the podcast but just is the fact and this is something we saw through Brexit but I think Covid showed it even more was the lack of understanding of devolution in Whitehall and that's something that we've already flagged that Brexit sort of showed that problem um, but I think that coronavirus has also shown that where there's so much confusion about where the rules are applying to England the UK what the government could do for, sort of UK wide what it could only do for England and I think that tension has also been demonstrated and as I say that's something that Brexit highlighted as well I I think brexit has put a huge amount of tension on the devolution settlement but i think that also the, the covid response this year has also demonstrated that
0: well with that let's do our final pivot and go to brexit and that word and subject that have dominated the last four and a half years so maddie the floor is yours
2: so um I mean, I was thinking back to this. I mean, if we, if we think back to the beginning of the year, I mean, we really were in a very different world. That the You know, Boris Johnson had just won an 80-seat majority on the back of his sort of slogan of getting Brexit done. After Theresa May struggles to get her deal through Parliament um, following the election, Boris Johnson was able to sort of whisk it through, was able to sort of sign off the withdrawal agreement, and the UK did leave the EU um, on the 31st of January this year. I think it was actually the, the same day that the first um, case of coronavirus was um, confirmed in the UK. Um, which is sort of uh, interesting to think about um but then sort of since then, it's been it's been quite interesting because it, Brexit hasn't really been very high up the news agenda. It hasn't been what what we're talking about. But we we do know negotiations have been ongoing for most of the year. As I sort of mentioned, there was a big speculation about whether or not the government would extend the transition period as it prepared um, to respond to the global pandemic. The choice was not to do that. And then since then, we've just had I mean, from an out, you know, observing this, we've just had so many missed deadlines where there have been you know a huge amount of debate about whether or not an agreement could be reach with the eu we initially had a deadline of mid-july then we had end of september then we had end of october you know in december we've missed about two or three already um and we're in a position where we're still talking um we don't know what's going to happen um, on or at 11 p.m on the 31st of december we don't know if there's well at least when we're recording this on thursday the 17th of december afternoon we don't know whether or not um a deal is going to be done that's sort of, I think, the sort of ongoing uncertainty really has been the story of Brexit in um, 2020. And as I say, while it hasn't necessarily been that high up the public consciousness, we, we have seen a growing concern, particularly from the business community, who are saying, we don't know what terms we're going to be trading with the EU on the 1st of January, and we need as much clarity as possible. And I think that's something that the government has really struggled to do. Um, so I think that's sort of, I guess, my my reflection on, on the year. Um, and as I say, we're still, we're still in that state of uncertainty.
0: Hmm. Thanks for that. Jill, what's the, um, the shape of the task that, that faces us? I'm thinking of all the stuff that the European Union has been doing and that the UK is going to have to do with a deal or without a deal, um, all kinds of regulatory stuff, and, and, um, and indeed working out what kind of shape of the economy we want. Where, where are we in that whole conversation? So you
3: could divide it if you like into sort of various categories there's the things where we're taking over functions from the EU or having to expand them and we saw that actually uh, quite interestingly on coronavirus where the UK's um, medicines health regulatory agency approved gave interim approval on an emergency basis to the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the European medicines agency which apparently is still slightly struggling with staff losses after its post-Brexit relocation to Amsterdam, hasn't yet approved it for use in the EU. So that's the sort of thing where we've just got to expand capacity. That it, but we're doing things we've done before. That's the MHRA, the Competition and Markets Authority, the Civil Aviation Authority is having to take over lots of functions from the European Air Safety Agency. So a range of things where the functions are known we're having to take them over. There are areas where we're designing new policy. The big sort of area at the moment where you can see that taking shape, and where interestingly the devolved administrations, devolved governments going off in other directions to the English government, the UK government for England, is agriculture policy, the replacement for the common agricultural policy. Um, Very different approaches being adopted there. But there's a sort of, you know, but that's something we have to do because we're coming out of an EU policy and need to make our own policy decisions. Then the big next set of issues, and we've seen some startings of the UK approach here, is on how do we use the new flexibilities. A couple of weeks ago, the Chancellor announced that he was giving EU financial institutions equivalent status to operate in the UK market. We're still waiting on a decision, an autonomous decision by the EU for UK financial institutions. But he also set out in a document the UK's new approach to equivalence decisions. That's something that's always been done before by the EU on behalf of all member states. And you could almost regard the Treasury document as an implicit critique of the EU's approach. It talked very much about being evidence-based, collaborative, predictable, stable, all the things basically (laughs) that you could say are not characteristics of the EU regime. And I think, you know, gradually ministers have more time for this. They will want to start defining new policy directions, but they'll have to have one eyes over whatever they sign up to, if they sign up to some sort of deal about what that triggers any of these level playing field risks. I mean, but the immediate thing that's going to preoccupy them for the first few months of the year, and indeed maybe most of the rest of the next year, is just getting you know, the basics right, getting the border functional, as functional as possible. They've managed to sort of agree uh, some temporary derogations to sort out bits on the Northern Ireland Protocol. They've got to agree what those permanent regimes look like to make sure that chilled meats can in perpetuity find their way onto Northern Irish, Irish shelves from, uh, from GB supermarkets, whatever. So there's quite a lot of just, detail of getting the new the just the basic un, not desperately interesting practicalities in the relationship mind right which matter enormously though for people whose livelihoods depend on it you know whose ability to consume as now and to enjoy life as normal uh, can work so you know there are lots of other sort of things coming up you know a very difficult point in the middle of next year will be the end of the grace period for settled status scheme so that we're so we keep on seeing this sort of drip feed of consequences of Brexit coming through, probably for much of the rest of the Parliament.
0: Well, or even even longer. Um, that's that's fascinating, Alex. I mean, we had a lot about the government's tension civil service over Brexit uh, and their accusations that the civil service had a certain ideology and so on. Do you think? Um, where, where do you think we are in that?
1: i think we are in a slightly more healthy phase now so uh, over the course of this year we have you know we've seen some slightly kind of you know, peculiar briefings to be honest suggesting that the next cabinet secretary needed to be a brexiteer or you know this or that permanent secretary was the only senior civil servant to vote uh, vote to leave the eu leaving uh, the, the i mean the, the moment of the 31st of December uh, offers an opportunity to uh, put that um, behind uh, the civil service to get over this sense that they're an enemy within. Uh, I think actually David Frost, having uh, played a pretty kind of strong hand and created a high status for him as a negotiator, has helped with that because it's allowed the civil service and the negotiating team to to sort of uncompromisingly fall in behind him uh, and to show that they're supporting uh, the government's objectives. So I, I suspect that um, you know that some uh, su- some of that uh, suspicion will linger. Uh, I'm sure there'll be conservative backbenchers who are uh, hardline on um, uh, on the EU who continue to to try to play that tune. But I would hope and expect that 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 could um, that could move on. I think it's all of a piece with some of the things that we were talking about earlier with um, Dan Rosenfield's arri- arrival in uh, in Number Ten and a uh, potential end oh. of uh, hard rain.
0: Interesting. Sunshine. Even Maddy, Joe was talking a bit about the the coming year. If you take us a bit into the realm of the no-none loans, the questions that we know are going to be there about Brexit in 2021, what's top of your list?
2: So there are sort of two different categories, I think. I mean, on on the one hand, I think one of the the big... um, sort of the, the one of the things that we're going to be watching anyway is just how does the government manage the end of the transition period i mean we are expecting a huge amount of disruption not just sort of at the border but also just for how businesses operate as they have to adjust to new rules and rules that they're not likely to know the detail of until you know a very very close to the end of the year so how how the government sort of you know we know businesses won't be ready for the changes how does the government sort of encourage businesses to prepare and get them into a place where they are able to comply with the rules of both the UK and the EU when they're trading. Um, So I think there's sort of a practical side of that. And as I said, I think the other sort of, element of that is just the fact that the government has essentially in a lot of areas um I mean Jill mentioned the fact they've re- agreed at a grace period around Northern Ireland with the EU but also unilaterally for example they've agreed to waive import controls until on the whole anyway until the middle of next year and um, there's also sort of they've accept they'll accept certain um, sort of uh, EU requirements on labeling and again that's going to phase out so I think there's going to be something very interesting about observing how sort of those the end of those sorts of grace periods kick in and how the government handles that and also how businesses respond so I think that's going to be on the top of a lot of um civil servants list and then I think the sort of broader question that I think still hasn't been answered and I think is going to be quite interesting and there are some opportunities I think for the UK government to answer them next year is just what the UK's sort of place in the world is outside the EU I think the last few years as 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 we've sort of been trying to figure out what we want from Brexit it's the UK has been very internal looking. Um, and I think that if there is, particularly if there's an agreement with the EU, which sort of resolves some of the questions about how the UK will trade with the EU, it will then leave more space to discuss how the UK then sort of goes out into the rest of the world, both sort of in terms of its relationship with Europe, but also with other Um, countries, not just trading and trade deals, but also sort of other areas of cooperation. And there are some opportunities next year for the UK to do so. It will be president of the G7, also be hosting um, COP26, the Global Climate Change Conference in Glasgow next year. So I think that that's something that I think will be quite important, is actually thinking about um, what the future of the UK is. And that's both sort of internally and sort of internal um, relationship between the devolved administrations and the UK government, sort of how does the UK operate as a nation, but also, as I say, how, how it engages um, with the rest of the world. So I think that's, that's a sort of one of the other I think, big unanswered questions at the moment that I think that the government, I mean, they, they've sort of got the integrated review um, into foreign policy and defence. So I think, you know, we might get some answers, but I think that's, that's the sort of other thing that I would say is that it should be at the top of their list.
0: Very, very, very interesting. We we're talking on our podcast, our weekly podcast, um, about um, how it's also going to have to get, get a sense of the, the shape of the economy, and that sounds very dry. But, um, you know, really, what kind of country Britons want their country to be. Um, Uh, And much to be said on that as well as we go into next year. Well, look, thank you all very, very much. But before we sign up, I'd like to ask you all to give me your winner and loser of 2020. Uh, Jill, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start. um, So my winner
3: of the year, I'm going to nominate um, Sir David Spiegelhalter, eminent statistician. You could also have Tim Harford, people like that, because I think one of the big winners of this year has been the importance of Numbers and reliable statistics, and the importance of being statistically literate. And I think that really, really matters. My loser of the year, rather controversially, I was going to offer you up Rishi Sunak. Um, Many people might think he's a big winner of the year, and indeed, he's still sort of really quite popular and things like that. But I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is he's had, if you like, the sort of easy year in which he can write very big checks, be very popular. But I think he's probably chancellor for quite the long term and I think he's going to find it a really difficult next three and a half years. So I think the person who's going to be looking most warily ahead over his Christmas turkey will be Rishi Sunak.
1: I was trying to think about uh, being more creative like Jill was with my loser of the year, but I I, I can't not go for Dominic Cummings. The story is too too, too good to resist. This um, man who has obsessed about government for uh, so many years, who has all sorts of ideas about how to reform it. Many of them, as we've said, actually very interesting and very constructive, um, but in the end brought down by uh, his uh, sort of hubris preceding his nemesis, uh, the frustration uh, that he must feel not being able to follow through on plans, uh, he. Uh, had so he's my uh, he's my loser of the year. My winner of the year uh, again toying around with various different people. Wondered about Michael Gove perhaps, but in the end I think I'm going to go for David Frost, uh, particularly if he does get a deal. I think his stock will be very high. As I said earlier, I think he's played both the politics and the administration of his role pretty cannily. He's got um, uh, he's got the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party on side, and he's got a plum job to go to in the new year as National Security advisor so um uh, i think he's uh he's got a busy uh but uh sort of positive 2021 to look forward to
2: it's interesting, actually, on winner of the year that um, Alex just said uh, Michael Gove, because I, I was also toying with Michael Gove. I think, I mean, I think he's had a very difficult year. He's been in charge of a lot, but I think he's sort of shown himself um, sort of in pretty good light. So I think he ha- he has had a good year. But I think, I mean, I was going to go a bit more sort of abstract, but I think that the winners of the, the winner of the year or the winners um, are sort of vaccines. I mean, I think that the fact that they have managed to get a COVID vaccine in actually sort of shorter time than a lot of people thought possible, I think is incredibly impressive. I think it shows what can happen when um sort of a lot of resource um goes behind it and, and you know there's sort of investment and and desire both from the government and and the population and i think the fact that for example we're closer now to a vaccine on malaria i think you know is something to be to be celebrated so i think that the sort of public health um side i think has has obviously had a sort of good year in very sad circumstances um I think my loser of the year, I mean, I was thinking about cabinet and sort of who hasn't really had a good time of it. And I think I'd actually end up, I ended up sort of plumping for Gavin Williamson. Um, I think that he's had, he has had a very difficult year um, in the sense that he has, you know, there've been U-turns around school meals. There's obviously been all the debate around school closure around Christmas where councils in London decided to close schools and he sort of said, no, you've got to keep them open. And, And I think that He's come in for a lot of criticism, and I think that probably quite a lot of that is well-deserved. So I think he's had a pretty um, bad year, to be honest.
0: Criticism from the IFG as well. Uh, Maddie, um, thanks for that. Well, I, I'd go even more abstract than, than, than Maddie and say w- the winner has been science and the loser politics. But I, if you want to put names to that, for example, can say the winner for me would be Anthony Fauci, the uh, presidential advisor who's uh, director of the National Institute of Allergy and infectious diseases and has been a calm voice for science in all this, and the loser, uh, I would put, is Donald Trump. The IFG um, believes that uh, Donald Trump lost the presidential election Um, point we're not going to spend time debating next
1: year. Um, Even Mitch McConnell agrees, probably.
0: Look, thanks for all that. And thanks so much for leaving the IFG Christmas Party to be here. You can now go back to it. Still going on, I think. No one can say we are committed to our task of making government more effective. That's it for the year. Thank you all at home for being with us throughout it. I hope we brought some entertainment and some enlightenment, or at least helped explain what the government is up to during a year which has been largely spent at home. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more IFG discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. So that's going to be the end of uh, 2020. Farewell. Memorable year, but we're looking forward to better days next year. All the best.